0: Welcome to LeapCast. I'm your host, Dr. George James. Leap stands for leaders, entertainers, athletes, and performers. And I'm on a journey to connect with high achievers and highlight their unexamined human moments. Tune in to learn how these high-achieving Leap individuals were able to reach their greatest potential, face their most difficult challenges, and embrace the human moments that helped them along the way. If you want to get the episode highlights directly in your email, then head to Theleapcast.com right now to subscribe. Hi, everybody. Welcome again back to LeapCast. I'm your host, Dr. George James, where we talk to leaders, entertainers, athletes, and performers, and I am glad to be able to connect with a new friend, someone that was actually introduced to me by my wife, someone that's just amazing, fantastic. He's just been doing so much great work, and I love the combination of his work and his calling, and how he's been able to do it together. So one, I just want to welcome Brother Ernest Miller. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you for joining LeapCast. And so first, welcome. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing well, George. Thank you so much for this opportunity to join you.
0: Thank you. And so how we like to start, or how I like to start in LeapCast is really going through something what we call as a leap story, which is a way of Kind of going back to saying, like, tell us a little bit about how things started for you. Maybe, you know, childhood, maybe early young adulthood. What were some of those things about you? You know, family, pursuits that you had. So, you know, take us back a little bit to some of the early days.
1: So happily, I'm a native of New Orleans, the Hudat Nation. Nice. that um, Nation is not doing so well right now in the NFL <laughs> world. <laughs> But I was born in New Orleans. And so I grew up in New Orleans and remained there through my undergraduate years. So all of my education through college was in New Orleans. I am a church child, uh, right? I grew up in the church. I was first until eighth grade uh, United Methodist. And then I made what I call a lateral move to Roman Catholicism. I don't like the the term convert. I don't yes. think convert is the right term when one moves from one Christian communion to another. So that's my term. I made a lateral move I like um, in eighth grade, but eighth I was grade. United Methodist.
0: So, you're, so if you, in eighth grade, does that mean, was that on your own? Was that like your family made that, that lateral move?
1: It was on my own. So I had been in Catholic school from first grade forward. So it washed over me for good or for ill. And you know, one day I just you know sort of told my parents I'd like to consider becoming uh, Catholic, and they didn't have much uh, argument uh, about it. And so we had my own little ceremony in the convent of the sisters um, who ran the school. The convent was on the top of the school. I had become very close to the sisters, the Mary Sisters of Holy Cross, and it is to them I owe the inspiration. To ultimately becoming a religious brother in the Catholic Church, and I'm, we can talk about that. Really um, if you're so interested, and so I left my grade school in sixth grade after sixth grade and migrated to Holy Cross School, which is an all boys Catholic high school, a five through twelve school. Now it's a pre K through twelve school, and that was a tremendous six years experience. And one of the important activities, academic activities of my high school years was I was in speech and debate. I cannot say enough about what being in that co-curricular activity did for me. Traveling around the country to speech and debate tournaments, going to summer institutes to become more expert in debate, um, going to uh, my sophomore year, uh, summer of my sophomore year, going to the University of Toledo. And then two summers up at Dartmouth College, tremendous experiences. And then when I became a student at Loyola, that's where I went for undergrad, did a BA in political science at Loyola in University, Loyola University, New Orleans. There are four Loyolos uh, oh, uh, with, him, with, with um, a higher education network. So Loyola, New Orleans, Loyola, Chicago, Loyola, Marymount, Los Angeles, and Loyola, Baltimore. Nice. And so after high school, I worked summers at the University of Iowa. Uh, national institutes in speech and debate, and I worked at the Dartmouth College Debate Institute. So tremendous experiences um, all around. And then after I graduated from Loyola, I went to GW, to George Washington University, to do a master's in international affairs. And it is after finishing that degree that I entered the Brothers. But I knew I most likely was going to enter religious life, as we refer to it, Catholic world before I went to GW, but I still was interested in going to Washington. I had fallen in love with Washington because as a, a junior, my fall semester of junior year, I studied in Washington at American University and just became quite enamored with the Washington scene. And I interned in the U.S. Senate with the senior senator from Louisiana, J. Bennett Johnston. But I think most significantly, George, I became connected to the Church of St. Augustine, which is the oldest Black Catholic parish in Washington. And that just became my, my church home, became very involved in a lot of uh, different activities through the parish. So anytime I could be in Washington, you know, I wanted to be in Washington. And so that's what, you know, brought me back to Washington um, for graduate school and became a member of St. Augustine for two years before I entered the Brothers in Philadelphia.
0: Uh, No, I appreciate you sharing that. And I think Mm -hmm. I had a client that I worked with at once who would tell me about that experience in Washington. I think that he Mm -hmm. would travel down (laughs) to be in -hmm. that community because of just a rich history of, you know, of St. Augustine and, you know, just folks of color. And so I'm really interested in some of those intersections. But I want to go back to debate, like Mm -hmm. speech and debate, you know, Mm -hmm. one coming from New Orleans being, you know, at that point, you know, a young man of color, what sparked your interest in speech and debate? And then obviously you were good at it because you kept doing it. So like, how, how
1: did that like evolve? Well, a great question. So I marked the beginnings in middle school. So before I left St. Rita's, our principal, Sister Winifred, started getting some of us involved in speech. So I was in a speech contest where I, it was a declamation. Declamation is the event which you give someone else's speech. Oratory is when you write your own speech. So I did, I have a dream in middle school. And it went well, I had to memorize it. And so when I moved to Holy Cross, right in seventh grade, I took a speech and debate class, seventh and eighth grade. And that class sort of became the incubator, if you will, towards joining the speech and debate team in high school. And so that's what I did. And in fact, I was running track and I had to make a decision between remaining in track as a sprinter or debate. I couldn't do both because debate, speech, and debate demanded so much time. And indeed, To confess, I probably oftentimes gave more attention to preparing for speech and debate tournaments than for some of my classes. (laughs) So I took it very seriously. But yeah, began with the Martin Luther King speech in middle school.
0: Wow. Now, I I can imagine like, you know, some people might know, but like, you know, speech and debate, not only is it the actual act of the debate or of the speech or the Mm -hmm. performance sort of, but also mm-hmm. all the the background, all the preparation, all the, mm-hmm. the information you have to know and be prepared to know things that you may or may not actually say mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. things that you might not actually use, but might be. But you need to know it and be prepared for it. So there's probably a
1: lot that you have learned and studied over the years. Indeed. So. I was in what is called, so there's different forms of debate. I was in what is called policy, two-man debate. So I had a partner, right? Okay. And so beginning freshman year, you know, so within speech and debate and with the national scene, there is a resolution, right, under which you are debating for the whole year, right? And so. You, the affirmative team has a case, right? And then you got to be prepared for a whole variety of negative affirmative cases when you are on the negative side and so on and so forth. My freshman year, debate resolution was concerning uh, criminal justice. And so as a freshman in high school, I'm finding myself in law school libraries. Wow doing research in law school libraries. It was just amazing. And I preferred, my favorite was foreign policy related topics, right? But, and so that's where, that's where it began. And so those skill sets that we learn in terms of research, beginning freshman year in high school, indeed, even in seventh and eighth grade, we were doing research that brought us to college libraries. So I just cannot say enough about that level and kind of experience um for sure, but we traveled all over the country. we had that we were privileged to to be able to have those experiences, so going to tournaments in Nashville and in Atlanta and to the big Harvard tournament in February, I remember when we first went to Harvard, right, I did not have the right coat, I did not have the right <laughs> shoes to be walking in snow. Etc. Etc. et cetera. Wait, there wait, the
0: right coat but, and the right shoes? There was a uniform?
1: No, in terms of as a Southerner, oh, right, right. <laughs> I really didn't have the equipment yes. <laughs> for my body to be running around in February in Boston. Yeah, that's, so. that's what I'm saying. Oh,
0: yeah, that's a culture shock.
1: <laughs> it was, indeed. Wow. <laughs> but I, I, I learned, I, I learned.
0: And I'm curious, uh, throughout your experiences, were there a lot of people of color who were also on these debate teams or in these tournaments or experiences that you had across the country?
1: Yeah, another uh, good question, George. Uh, Yes. So in New Orleans itself, on the New Orleans scene, right, we're talking about both private and public schools, both base private schools and secular private schools. So you have in New Orleans, uh, majority African-American Catholic schools. My school, Holy Cross, was not one of them, but you you had St. Augustine, which is an all boys Catholic high school, somewhat known institution. And you had several all girls, uh, majority black Catholic schools, and then public schools, right? Public schools were in the mix. So yes, we had a diversity of students from that landscape in New Orleans and then elsewhere in the country. So, yes, it was a diverse uh, space considering all things. Wow. Well, I mean, that's
0: great to hear because, you know, once again, there's different ideas that people might have about who does debate
1: uh, mm-hmm. or speech, and, speech. Or, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and who
0: might be a part mm-hmm. of those mm-hmm. experiences. And it's, mm-hmm. it's great mm-hmm. to know that, one, it's for everybody and that mm-hmm. it is mm-hmm. diverse mm-hmm. and that there's lots of people mm-hmm. who participate in
1: is that still a part of your life now? It is not. I sort of stepped away from being active in that world some time ago. So I would say that after entering the brothers in my first uh, years as a brother, I taught in Philadelphia at two of our uh, LaSallean secondary schools. And at West Catholic, which is in the West Philadelphia section of Philadelphia, I was the director of debate, speech and debate. And then after I left there, I had a year of what we call the novitiate, which is like a year-long retreat um, before you can make your start your years of temporary vows. And when I came back from the novitiate, which was in Skinny Atlas, New York, so this is we're dealing with the this is in the late 90s. I then returned to LaSalle College High School, which is in Winmore, PA, just outside of Northwest uh, Philadelphia. And there I was the debate coach. But it was during my time at LaSalle College High School when I began to step into other areas of interest. So I became the, the founding moderator of the Amnesty International chapter, right? And so that those sort of justice-oriented activities started to pull me away. But my interest in justice concerns and international affairs emerged because of my debate yeah. experience yeah i can imagine and so that's where the the turn began. again for a little while i continued to perhaps judge i did go back once to work at the debate in, the speech and debate institute at iowa but yes i stepped away from that world but every now and then you know i listen in on what's going on but it really has changed there's so many new opportunities to do different forms of debate and and so on and so forth. But yes, the the one negative critique I would say is that it can be an expensive activity. If you are going to go to these uh, summer institutes, they're expensive. And, you know, my parents sacrificed for me to go to those summer institutes while I was in high school. You know, I got, you know, scholarship, cover some of the costs. But my parents had to cover the rest of the cost. Had to, tra- you know, pay for my transportation to get to Toledo. Pay for my transportation to get all the way up to New Hampshire, and so on and so forth. So I'm grateful to my mother and father for the many sacrifices for my education and well-being.
0: I love hearing that. And I could totally relate in terms of sacrifices. You know, parents have made. My parents have made that open the door or possibilities for me.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I want to. I'm curious. I want to learn a little mm-hmm. bit more about your experience leading into the brotherhood and after. You know, I I grew up also in the church, what most would maybe call Pentecostal slash charismatic, mm-hmm. and I didn't really have much interaction with Catholicism until undergraduate, where I went to Villanova and mm-hmm. Augustinian, Asian, mm-hmm. Augustinian, right, and it wasn't until being on campus going to mass occasionally mm-hmm, having mm-hmm, friends mm-hmm. who grew up catholic and then you start to like really bridge into folks who are their religious life their connection to god is really important and then you start to recognize oh i've learned it this way you've learned mm-hmm, it this way mm-hmm, but yet there are all these similarities mm-hmm. and and so with that i'm curious about your journey and how you made that decision to join the religious life and to explain some of that, especially Mm -hmm. because I know a lot of folks don't, well, I didn't always know how many people of color in particular, black men in the brotherhood. So there's Mm -hmm. so much there I want to explore. So if you could just share some of your journey.
1: sure, sure. Let me see how I can break it open. So let me begin here. Within the Roman Catholic church, there are priests, brothers, sisters, deacons, priests, are the clergy of the Catholic Church, right? Pretty clear. Deacons, you know, or clergy, but deacons can be married. And then there are sisters and brothers. Most people outside of the Roman Catholic world, for sure, know of women religious sisters. We often refer to them as nuns, but sisters and nuns are two different categories of women religious, mm. right? But let me just leave that there, and then they're brothers. And many people, even within the Catholic world, don't readily know about brothers unless they have been connected to an institution or some other ministry where they are brothers, right? So, for example, I'm not sure many students at Villanova know that they are Augustinian brothers. Probably, this thing all Augustinians are priests, yeah, right? Same thing for Jesuits probably most people think jesuits are all priests but they are jesuit brothers okay. brothers are vowed lay religious men so if one has a conception of sisters and nuns then you have a conception of a brother if that's one way to understand it i am a member of the brothers of the christian schools popularly known as the de la Salle christian brothers And we are an all-brothers institute or order. The word institute is sort of the official uh, canon law, church law term for religious orders. We are called institutes. And so the institute or the order to which I belong is over 342 years young, founded in 1680 in Rheims, France, by a priest from a wealthy family, and his name was John Baptist La Salle. And he was canonized a saint in the church in 1900. So he's Saint John Baptist de la Salle. So we are the largest all brothers institute in the Catholic Church. And our mission field is education and evangelization, right? We are schools people. We have all kinds of schools. We are today just a little over 3,000 brothers, but that's down from our heyday of nearly 17,000 brothers. Wow. But in the mid-1960s, we reached that that apex, if you will. But there are over 103,000 other Lasallian educators. We call Lasallian partners. And so we have schools and colleges and universities and centers of education in 80 countries in the world on six continents. Here in the United States, we are broken into what we call districts, right? So religious orders have regions that we call provinces, but we call our provinces officially districts. So in the U.S., we have three districts. I'm a member of the District of Eastern North America. There's the District of the Midwest and the District of San Francisco, New Orleans. These three districts are amalgamations of other districts, right? So when I entered the Brothers in the mid-1990s, we were eight districts. And so originally in the Mid-Atlantic where LaSalle University is, et cetera, et cetera, we were part of the Baltimore district, but Baltimore district amalgamated with the New York, our New York district and the Long Island, New England district to create what is called DINA or the district of Eastern North America. So we are about uh, 210 brothers in the district, along with several thousand other LaSallean educators in our district. We have about 19 secondary schools, five, six middle schools, and the two higher education institutions, LaSalle University of Philadelphia, Manhattan College in the Bronx, southwest Mm -hmm. corner of the Bronx. Mm -hmm. And we also have ministries for court-adjudicated youth, which falls in the category of what we call youth and family services ministries as well. And then if we go to our Midwest district, we also have uh, retreat centers. Uh, we used to have a retreat center here on the East Coast, but we, we closed it in the, in the late 90s. So that's sort of a, a broad scope. But more personally, I am a brother today because of the sisters that I encountered in grade school at St. Rivas, the Mary Knight Sisters of Holy Cross. More specifically, if I was to single out a particular person, it is Sister Juanita Wood, MSC, my third grade teacher. Who's still living i see her every time i go home Mm -hmm. so when i was home in august i was with sister Juanita and some of the other sisters so they were my first influencers and so they said well you know since you cannot be a a sister the next best thing (laughs) if you want to be a religious in the catholic church is a brother so i really never had any conception of being a priest wow Because I also early on had an interest, I think, in education, in teaching, even though I also dreamed of being perhaps a Greyhound bus driver, because that's how I often went to the country, to my grandmother's house. Even if people were driving out there, I asked my mom and dad, could I take the bus? (laughs) It's crazy. But I'm also a train lover. We could talk about that as well. But I also had, as I became more mature, also the notion of perhaps being a staff member for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee.
0: Wait, so did you say a trained? A bus. I like trains, riding trains. Oh, trains. Oh,
1: okay, okay. That's yes, right, trains. Right. Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> and that's how I would get up to, to Dartmouth. I would take the train because nice. um, I didn't like flying in those days. So I would take the train most everywhere. So gradually the notion of becoming a brother just simply, you know, grew on me, right? So, after I left St. Rita's, I went to Holy Cross. So, there I encountered the brothers of Holy Cross. Mm. And when I, around my junior year, I entered what is called the Aspirancy Program, which is a program for college age young men who want to more seriously consider our institute. And so, I first met some of our brothers, the Delisle brothers in New Orleans, when I was in seventh grade. I was kind of a precocious child, kind of a peculiar child, right? You know, I would write vocation directors of different of a variety of religious orders, in part because I like getting mail. But you know, so I learned about a variety of religious orders. But gradually, George, it became clear to me that I was interested in being a brother, and then more so, it became clear to me that I would be more comfortable in a religious order of only brothers as opposed to mixed orders. Right, most. Religious orders of men in the Catholic Church are mixed orders of priests and brothers, okay. right? But for a, a variety of reasons, I discern that I would fit better in an all-brothers institute. And ultimately, I chose the De La Salle brothers because our primary sole mission field is education and evangelization. Many orders do a variety of ministries. Right? Mm-hmm. Including the Holy Cross Brothers, even though education might be their primary field, where the majority of their brothers are ministering, but for us, education, right, writ large, right, across the board, right, and also just the founding story, right. If, if one was to get a little taste of our founding story of John Baptist de Salle and his founding of the Brothers of the Christian Schools in late 17th century France, and our evolution, again, it just kind of washed over me and just appealed to me. Wow. And so here I am, nearly 30 years later, I remain. <laughs> so I've had you know great experiences, but even though I've been in administration in the last many years, both at LaSalle University and now my, this new role that I'm in that we can talk about if you desire. but I always make it clear I'm a classroom brother. I love the classroom. It is sacred space. And so even though I've been in administration, I still hold on to the fact that I'm a classroom brother. And I did have scatteredly, while I was at LaSalle University for seven years as a vice president, opportunities to teach. And now in my new role, I'm going to see this again as a, a new space. It's not the regular classroom. But also another opportunity to, to be teacher, to be educator and to be learner. Um, nice. Yeah. So
0: yeah, I definitely want to get into what you're doing now. But before we go there, I wanted to, as you explain your journey and Sister Juanita and her influence and okay. where you know how you made your decisions, can you also tell me about, at least the little that I've learned, that some, there are some places where the brothers can be all black are all men of color. And I guess has that been any of the the groups that you've been a part of or has that been places that you've intersected with or just want to know more about what's it like being a man of color in the religious life? Because we don't often hear that. We don't often see it. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> I know it's there and it's actually pretty sure. prominent. And so I'm wondering your experience.
1: Sure. Well within My community within here in the US, when I joined the brothers in 1993, we were eight African American brothers out of several hundred of us, right? In the mid 1990s, we would have been in the US as many as, you know, 700, 800 brothers. We're now four African American brothers. We have a large contingent, of course, of our brothers on the mother continent. Mm -hmm. But here in the US, no. And as you look across the landscape of Catholic religious orders, right, there are not many of us, both in terms of Black priests, as well as Black brothers and sisters, right? We are a dwindling population. And again, religious life generally, right? And this yep. is probably for a whole nother uh, <laughs> uh, crossword <laughs> to talk about, you know, how religious life in the Catholic Church has been changing over the last decades, you know, since the Second Vatican Council, right? Some people see it as this is the work of the spirit, right? But, but there is different organization that brings us together. So there is what is called the National Black Sisters Conference. There is the National Black Clergy Caucus, which includes brothers. Every time I say the name, it bothers me because brothers are not clergy, but brothers belong to the National Black Clergy Caucus. And so that organization includes priests, brothers, deacons and uh, seminarians. And so there's an annual gathering called the joint conference. That brings us together during the summer. I'm not able to go every summer just because of competing demands on my schedule. And then there are other Black Catholic organizations. There's National Black Catholic Congress, which was revived in 1987. It is something, it's a a space, it's an organization that was started by lay Black Catholics in the late 19th century. And then it went on hiatus, if you will, for many decades. And then it was revived in the late 1980s. And it gathers every five years, this National Black Catholic Congress. But there's permanent secretariat of the Congress. And it fosters, it facilitates a variety of activities. And it's based out of Baltimore. And then there are other organizations. Now, there are some religious orders where you will find slightly larger uh, pool of African-American religious men. So, for example, the Josephites, which is a religious order that primarily ministers in the African-American community. There's a fair number of African-American redemptrists, for example, SBDs, the Society of Divine Word. They have a, a good, strong contingent of African-American religious, mostly um, priests but there are three historic women religious Hmm. order of Black women religious. The Sisters of the Holy Family, based in New Orleans, founded in New Orleans. The Oblate Sisters of Providence, based out of Baltimore. And there's a smaller group based in Harlem, the the Franciscan Handmaids. And so those three historic Black women religious groups. Now, why do they exist? Well, largely because Black women were not accepted in these white women religious institutes, right? But there are majority white women religious institutes who have a presence here in the U.S. that have a low contingent of Black women religious, Um, and in fact, I'm involved in part of a planning team for a an initiative connected through um, the Catholic Theological Union, where I did my D-Men in High Park, Chicago, and was just with some of the some Black sisters who are members of majority white institutes, such as the Sisters of Notre Dame de Namur and the School Sisters of Notre Dame. Right, so we're sprinkled <laughs> here and there. Right, that might be one way of putting. It. We're sprinkled here and there uh when you get outside of those majority mm-hmm. um black women religious groups there is no there isn't any majority black men's group here in the US now on the mother continent there are indigenous african born religious orders that of course are you know all uh chocolate
0: <laughs> well yeah i really appreciate how much you share and how much you know and, you know, your ability to really describe it and to break it down. And I hear how, like, all these different passions and interests of yours have really come together, right? From, you know, your interest in debate and speech, which led to research. Your connection with the Sister Juanita, which also kind of pulled out this part of you that was already really connected to the religious life and how you pursued that, you know, further on. And, and in the particular... Way that you've gone about a particular order around education and influence and impact, <laughs> and how you know it's kind of all come together, and, and you know I can hear it in like in your work, and so I'm curious you know as we kind of start to kind of wrap up, if you can share kind of what you're doing now because I know that mm-hmm. you're haunt is something new and great and you've you know kind of shared a little bit, but can you talk about what you're doing now and maybe how it all kind of comes together for you
1: sure so Our brother visitor, or provincial, that is the brother who is the head of the district, he approached me in December to consider leaving LaSalle University to serve as the founding director of this new project. It's called the Adrian Neal Project. I said yes. (laughs) (laughs) It is a project that is Going to focus on the formation of teachers, of educators. Part of what is in the background is the growing concern about the outflow from the profession of teaching. You almost can pick up a newspaper every other day, and you might see an article that's referring to the dearth, the lack of teachers. The press tends to focus on uh, public schools, right? But this also is impacting uh, private schools as well, faith-based schools and other private schools, some more than others. And so our LaSallean heritage, from our beginnings, John Baptist de LaSalle and our first brothers in France... Not only were they conducting schools, and I should say our beginnings were, we were elementary school teachers. John Baptist De La Salle never had a, a vision that his brothers would be certainly in higher education, right? We were elementary school teachers. But from those early days, in addition to conducting schools, De La Salle and the brothers also had were called normal institutes, right? The the rudimentary, the early beginnings of teacher colleges. Because De La Salle and the First Brothers, they couldn't be everywhere. And so they had an interest of preparing others to teach where they were not able to be present. Right? Mm-hmm. So this is so this interest in preparing people to teach. Yeah is in our marrow, in our bones, right? Yeah. yeah. And so how can we, because of our charism, right, charism, this church word that means, you know, the, the spirit of our institute that's given to us, you know, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, how can we stake a claim in light of our heritage and our charism to not only the profession of teaching, but How can we nourish and nurture our teachers in the vocation of teaching, right? That is not merely a profession, but it is a vocation, it's a calling. So, the Adrian Nell project is going to create, offer different itineraries of formation for new teachers in our uh, Lasallian schools within our District of Eastern North America. Then, I want to see how can we create an itinerary of formation for veteran teachers, particularly teachers who have participated in various mission education and formation programs that our LaSalle region of North America offers. And then the Adrian Nell Project is going to explore how can we support the teacher education program at LaSalle University and at Manhattan College, Mm -hmm. which gives us a possibility of supporting new teachers beyond those who are coming to our LaSallean schools in our district. Right? Who is Adrian now? Well, we probably wouldn't be here. There would be no LaSalle University. There would be no Brothers of the Christian Schools. There would be no, probably, St. John Baptist de LaSalle, had it not been an encounter in March of 1679 between Adrian Niel, who was a lay schoolmaster from Rouen, France, who encountered John Baptist de La Salle at the convent door of the Sisters of the Child Jesus in his home city of Reims. It is that encounter in 1679 that gradually began to pull de La Salle into the world of schools in the service of boys, because the brothers only taught boys and sisters only taught girls, well into the 20th century, because Jealous Sal was on a trajectory, George, most likely becoming a high ecclesiastical figure when you read his pedigree, right? He came from a very wealthy bourgeoisie family. Indeed, his mother was of nobility. She was a moette. If you know Champagne, that oh. vintage still exists. Yeah. And they... Have they make over 3 million bottles of champagne a year. So De La Salle comes from the Champagne region of Northeast France. So when you look at his pedigree, he most likely was on the trajectory of becoming a bishop, archbishop, cardinal, arch, and, and so on and so forth. But it is this encounter with Adrian Nell that pulls him gradually into this world of schools in the service of boys from income-poor and working-class backgrounds. That's the beginnings of our story, right? And so the project is called the Adrian Nell Project because it signifies our beginnings and our commitment to the vocation of teaching. I like to say teaching and learning, right? And so I'm excited. I need to create these (laughs) itineraries, right? So as much as I'm excited, I do have a little uh, bit of Kierkegaardian fear and trembling, but I think the spirit will fall fresh and we'll get underway. But in these first many months, it's going to be a period of, of listening and conversation. One of the things, instead of just creating something cookie cutter, here it is. I want to go around to our schools and speak to administrators and others to say, these are some of the ideas that I'm thinking about and get their input. And so I hope to start that within the next month or so. Now, in addition to serving as the director of the project, I still will continue to serve. I'm on three of our university boards. So there are six LaSallean colleges, universities in the U.S. I'm on the board of trustees for three of them. So I'm continuing that work. I'm also on the, the board of a research institute. It's called the Spring Tide Research Institute that does serious work around the unaffiliated young people, that is, young people who have become unaffiliated with religion. And indeed, on Wednesday, I leave for Chicago for our fall board meeting. So those are some of the things I will continue to do as well. And in some ways, our brother visitor wants us to see. So the Adrian Niel Project falls within the office under the umbrella of our Office of Mission ministry. So we are kind of a team, right? So I'm the lead for this Adrian Nell project, but I'll be joining other activities within the office of mission and ministry. And once the Adrian Nell project is really underway, I assume that other colleagues within the office of mission and ministry will perhaps, you know, help join at times some of the uh, activities of the Adrian Nell. And finally, I was asked to move to New York. So we so we've opened up a new brothers community. In the Soho neighborhood of downtown New York, here in Manhattan. And it's called the Adrian Dell community. So right. we closed our brothers' community over in the East Village. So the brothers who were living in that community and ministering at LaSalle Academy, one of the oldest LaSallean schools in the country, founded in 1848, they moved to this new house and then myself. So there's four of us to inaugurate this new uh, brothers community here in this very exciting neighborhoods my head is spinning over the number of restaurants (laughs) within just a few blocks of a walk so yeah so we're getting a taste of the i mean i was familiar with the neighborhood before moving here but living here is a whole different ball of
0: (laughs) it is and i love you know just how your passion comes out your knowledge and the intersection of that, and really how I could just hear how you want to continue to do good and to impact people and especially those who are called to be educators, uh, teachers, and for them to be supported and well equipped and to also do a good job right that you know so many people are are put in the role but maybe not really able to learn what it means to to share, to teach, mm-hmm, to educate, mm-hmm, to, mm-hmm. to influence other minds. And, you know, mm-hmm, I can hear how mm-hmm. your interest and passion has been connected to that, which I, I think is just great. So la- three last things I'd like to ask folks before we end one, mm-hmm. if there's somebody that you could work with or partner with or collaborate with, who would that person be?
1: Wow. Wow. That's a great question. There's so many persons. But among the persons, I would identify William Barber, the Reverend Dr. William Barber uh, from North Carolina. He is the co-founder, co-leader of the Poor People's Campaign. He's a tremendous uh, preacher. I have a weakness for the preach word, for the word preached well. Yes, (laughs) And he's one of them. Another person I would love to just be on their side and just be a fly on the wall is the Reverend Dr. Otis Moss the mm-hmm. third, the senior pastor of Trinity United Church of Christ on the south side of Chicago. I am just enamored by this mm-hmm. brother and another excellent preacher, but also brings the word to life. Uh, Trinity is an activist church. In the neighborhood and beyond, I would love to spend time and partner with our brother Otis Moss. And then another person I would lift up, and I have had an opportunity to spend time with her here and there, and that is uh, Marion Wright Edelman, the founder and now president emeritus of Children's Defense Fund. I've had an opportunity to intern twice at CDF at the headquarters in Washington. And then I was just so elated that I had an opportunity to put her on the role of candidates to receive an honorary degree at LaSalle University. And in 2017, she was an honorary degree recipient uh, nice. at the undergraduate commencement at Salle. So, yeah. So those are three people. That's uh, an awesome list. Three persons people. among others. Yeah. Uh, yeah.
0: That's an amazing, awesome list, and you know what you're doing. You know, I could, you know, easily see those opportunities uh, to that they could happen or happen again, as some you've been already affiliated with. Last two questions: How would you define mental wellness?
1: Mercy, mercy, brother. <laughs> that is again just a great question, one to ponder. For me. Mental wellness involves you know, trying to striving for a certain interiority. Interiority is a, a particular dimension that is emphasized in Lasallian spirituality. And in part, to speak of interiority is about being in touch with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, to speak from a religious, from a theological perspective how do we each day allow the spirit to burst forth to come forth in us and through us and around us certainly for me to achieve mental wellness right prayer is important and right and prayer is a dimension of you know the brother's life dimension of religious life generally so prayer for me both communal prayer personal prayer and also solitude I'm an only child. And so I think, and you know, I need to probably spend more with persons like yourself to really understand me in the sense of what has been the impact of being an only child all my days. Mm -hmm. But I appreciate and I gravitate to solitude. So I can travel from Philadelphia to Seattle by train, by myself, remain in my little uh, roomette, maybe with the exception of going into the dining room for meals, and I'm as comfortable as I'll get out. So I value solitude. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, even walking the busy streets Mm -hmm. of New York or Philadelphia, I can somehow still maintain a sense of solitude, right? Because I think part of it, George, is unlike many people around us, I'm not, I don't have this need to be constantly plugged, right? With headsets on, with my ears pierced to the phone, et cetera, et cetera. Right. I'm comfortable with the sounds (laughs) of the natural and built environment. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if any of that makes sense, but some of that is part of my attempt to have some semblance of a mental wellness. Oh, I appreciate that.
0: And, you know, it makes sense. And what those things that you practice and do that allows you to, to have that level of mental wellness. Last Mm -hmm. question I like to ask is what mental wellness advice would you give to your earlier self? And that could be yesterday or any time in the past.
1: That I would give to my self. To myself.
0: Share, yeah. Well, what mental wellness advice would you share to yourself earlier in your
1: life? Again, these are uh, some profound uh, questions. I think I would say to my earlier self, rest, rest, rest. Hebrews 4.3, which basically says to find rest, right? holy rest i was often you know just Mm -hmm. constantly on the move and i think now i have a better sense of of rest of pause of creating space and i'll get one way of trying to explain everything completely here is on vacation in earlier times I would want to be up we got to leave at 8 cuz we got to do this, we got to do that, we got to do this, we got to do that. Boop, 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 boop. And now I've become more relaxed mm. that I or we don't need to fill the whole day right with things to do. And so it's about continuing, it's a continuum about getting a better sense of of being, mm-hmm. a better sense of just being and not having this sort of hurriedness, right? I think I would say to myself, you know, you were once very hurried Mm -hmm. and I trying to be in touch with my interiority. I think I have a better sense of not being Mm -hmm. hurried, more balanced, more measured in how I move and have my being yeah but i don't know if that's a uh, no, somewhat no, of an no. elegant uh no, I, <laughs> incomplete no, it, it,
0: to me it, it makes sense and the thought of how you know you know when i think about my own life right how we can be in such rush to get to wherever we think we're trying to get to mm-hmm. and then you know where people are talking about the journey or people mm-hmm. talk about like you know being able to experience the moments or to mm-hmm. find rest and peace mm-hmm. i mean mm-hmm. that's what mm-hmm. i heard mm-hmm. right like how do you like Allow yourself to live in that place. And sometimes when we're younger, or sometimes because of all the different things, the push and pull of life, we don't allow ourselves to do that. And I think Mm -hmm. that sometimes that does take away from our mental wellness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Brother Ernest, I I really appreciate your willingness to be here and to share and to share your journey and your passion and your faith and your call for not only justice and social justice but also for people to be equipped in their ability to meet the need and the minds that they will face and the graceful way that you do it and the intellectual and profound way that you do it. And so I'm really just grateful that we were able to spend this time. Thank you for joining me here as a part of LeapCast. And so as we end, anything that you want to share before we end, but thank you for your time.
1: I just want to express uh, gratitude for the invitation. I want to Wish choice blessings on the work, the ministry, if I may say that that you do, and appreciation to your wonderful wife and my uh, colleague for connecting us. By, I think the world of your wife and the work that she is doing at La Salle University and beyond. And so I just wish blessings on both of you and, and your yeah. family. And just for us to continue to to give witness where we are in a spirit of faith and hope in these our times, that we will continue to work towards creating, towards building the reign of God right here, right now.
0: Well, thank you for that, and you know, I also I think highly of my wife, and I think she's incredible. And I'm grateful that her path and your path crossed and all the ways that you've influenced her and mm-hmm. also influenced me. So I'm glad for this time. Thank you for your thank words. You. Uh, thank you for your prayers. I appreciate them all. Look forward uh, to us meeting someday. Yes, you. I'm looking forward to it. So thank you. Thank you. Wow. What an incredible ride we just went on with another great member of the LeapCast community. I appreciate you listening and hope you got some tangible value from the episode. Please let us know what you think by leaving a comment, rating, and review. As always, please don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Dr. George James, and I'll see you next time.